Hello, welcome to Theologizing Life with me, Matt Tracy, and pastor, extraordinaire, theologian, scholar, now published author, the one and only Cottrell. What's yeah. up? Yeah. How's it going? Well, hello. There's a lot of adjectives you included there. Yeah. Pastor, scholar, extraordinaire, probably a little over mm. <laughs> No, a little over the top, a little over the top, but you know what? I'll take it, right? Yeah. Thank you. Such kind words, Professor Matt. Well, you might have noticed that Anthony is not doing the introduction today because Anthony is our special guest. What? Oh my goodness. Totally not ready for this. Didn't see that coming. Yeah, we, we totally, this is just a rock, rock <laughs> random. Um, so um, yeah, but before we get started, how's it going? Any uh, life updates so far? What's been going on? Oh man, November was crazy. So some people, we did have one listener notice that we didn't have a November episode, but we had, and you too, actually, we had sickness in our home for like half the month. Uh, Evelyn and I got a stomach bug and then Emily got influenza A and it was like, I have never in our entire married lives seen my wife so sick and down for the count. Uh, it was, it took her out. Um, and then I have another funny story, kind of. It's funny now. Uh, we, a, a week ago now, Sunday afternoon, we came home from church and our kids are three and six. And we said, okay, we're going to lay down and rest. We're having quiet time. You guys don't have to take a nap but you have to play quietly or color in the art room, or you could lay down. Like it would be good for you. You will enjoy it if you do it. Well, Titus comes, knocks on our door and says, and we're like, the door's closed and locked. We're like, nope, go away. He's like, well, I have something to tell you. Nope. He's like, well, it's kind of an emergency. Okay, what is it? We, he was really calm. So we, we really doubted the, you know, agency factor. He's like, well, I think I should come in and tell you. Like, nope, say it through the door. Because, <laughs> well, Evelyn got the scissors and she's cutting her hair. Okay, we jump out of bed. <laughs> Emily goes, and um, yeah, Evelyn, uh, it wasn't like one, like cut like her bangs or something. Like I've heard, like I did as a kid actually. Uh, she cut. She has a like a bob haircut, I guess now is what you call it. And she took a cut out of Titus's bangs, and so he uh, he got a haircut. Uh, as well so um so that was fun that's that's kind of what november is like how about you yeah. it's been about the same yeah i mean i haven't seen evelyn's no haircut yet but uh as a dad i can imagine having a, a blonde little girl the hair is like one of the best parts and so it must be kind of sad for you to <clears throat> but it's a it funny was yeah. it was kind of sad she's She's pulling off the haircut really well, though. She's got just such a acute face and pretty eyes, and yeah, then her spunky attitude oh, it sort of it sort of works. Yeah, my my November was sort of the same. Um, yeah, apologies for no episode and no uh, warning you that there wasn't going to be an episode. It was just crazy. Um, I've been sick basically since yesterday, <laughs> or since sorry. I've been sick 
from the beginning of the month until yesterday, basically. Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been sick for a whole day. It's crazy, <laughs> um, crazy. <laughs> yesterday was December, actually. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's you know that's where my mind's at, and so just by you know teaching and finals, having a toddler who just like brings a new virus home every week from daycare. It's just like, um. Yeah, not the not the easiest month, but Christmas is here. So parenting is the best. Parenting is the best, hardest thing I've probably done. Yeah. And am doing and will be doing for the rest of my life. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, another new update. We uh found out that we well this, we found out a while ago, but we just announced it at Thanksgiving was uh we're having another baby. Yay! Yeah. Gluttons for punishment. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. So That's exciting. Congratulations. I kind I need to act like I am hearing it for the first like, no way. I actually <laughs> you guys kind of told me. I'm pretty sure I told you, but yeah. <clears throat> Sword um, to secrecy. So that's a new life development. Um very exciting. It is exciting. Do in Trying to not use the pronouns here because I don't know if Elisa wants to tell people the gender yet, but uh, he or she is due in June. So, oh, exciting! Baby Tracy—that's the way to stay gender neutral. Baby Tracy is due in June. We did the the whole like blood test, like gender genetic testing thing, and so we got the gender like super early. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. And you guys did find like you guys did open the envelope. We did. <laughs> it was right. it was um the the nurse was like because it's a very non-invasive now because they don't um they don't test amniotic fluid they just test the blood and so it's just like why not and the nurse was like i can just have the results for you in an envelope here and you can pick them up if you want to see them and lisa brought them home and i'm like i can't just have this envelope sitting in my house and not look at it you know it's yeah. too hard for me so uh So yeah, um, yeah, we know the gender. We're probably gonna tell people. I just haven't double checked with the wife yet. Um, you know, That's our, our nationally, you know, broadcasted podcast isn't gonna. Just she doesn't want to be the first. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's sorry, guys. You're you won't have privileged information. For millions of listeners. <laughs> so anyway, that was November for us. Um, crazy month, but we got through it, and now we're back, and we have our uh wonderful host anthony cottrell talking about his new book that yay um super exciting i know it's been a dream of anthony since basically since i met him and probably before that um and so i'm just gonna uh take a take a little bit here and ask you some questions just about your book and um kind of the story behind it and what you want your readers to take away from it. And at the end, uh, we'll, we'll let you know where to buy it. Uh, so you can support Anthony and his efforts. Yeah. So fantastic. Yeah. Um, so first of all, um, I just want to know, tell us the story. Uh, well, the title of your book, I'll, I'll let you share that. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't already. Uh, tell us the title and kind of the story behind it. Like, why did you call it that? Why did you choose mm-hmm. to write it? Um, yeah. Who is it intended for? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, this might be a long answer that answers a couple other questions. I don't know. But so um, it goes back to high school, actually. Back in the day, I had a MySpace account. Do you remember MySpace, Matt? Or were oh, you? yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I started sort of writing, I think on MySpace, it was called Notes. I know on Facebook, they had notes. I think MySpace called it notes too, but started writing these notes that were essentially sort of like a blog post you could post on your MySpace that were sort of like apologetic reflections or reflections on my faith. And I received um, encouraging positive feedback from people um, like in my youth group or people I worked with uh, in high school. And uh, so it seemed like, oh, like writing seems to be something like God uses uh, some, something I can do. And so then in college, I got Facebook and I wrote notes again. And, um, so part of it is, it just seems even with like preaching, uh, as a pastor, it seems that my communicating either vulnerably my own aspects of my own faith journey or teaching about scripture uh, and, and sharing stories, rather through preaching or the written word, seems to be something God uses to connect with other people. So I guess I just started owning that, that like, I, I guess I, I can write. I'm not the best at it, not the most gifted, but like it's something I can do decently uh, at times. And then, so this is the part where I'll have some honest self-disclosure for a minute. Um, and I, I guess I'm sharing that because I I, uh, well, I found that vulnerability connects with people. So somewhere in college, like I also started having a desire to learn and grow and all these things and read. And so I encountered, I, I kind of got this narrative that like smart people write books. And then there's these pastors, these uh, successful pastors who wrote books. And so somewhere the, along the lines, I think I did sort of buy into the narrative that like a uh, successful pastor uh, writes and publishes books. And that's something I should do because I want to be successful. However, that said, uh, I read a book by Eugene Peterson called The Pastor that really um, just brought in a healthier, more mature focus on what it means to be a successful pastor. And I realized that I don't want to write a book out of ego. Uh, I don't want it to be ego driven. Um, and so the short answer is, I think there was a part or a season of this dream to write a book that was rooted in or motivated by ego-driven desires to be a successful pastor. Uh, I think now at this time in my life, I wrote a book for the reasons I said earlier is that it seems that sometimes when I share things vulnerably and transparently and reflectively talk about God and scripture and life and all these things uh, that God uses the words that I write. And so uh, I wrote the book in hopes that it would connect with people and perhaps uh, encourage their, their own faith journeys. Um, yeah, that was the question, right? Who, who, do, yeah. what inspired me to write it? Yeah. Oh, the title. So the title it's called acts of defiance. Um, that's a little bit where, where that title came. So 
I blogged for a while. I've preached sermons. And a long time ago, I started manuscripting sermons. And um, I started wanting to set out, like, it was a goal back in 2019 to write four chapters that year. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to try to write a book, at least get a manuscript together or compile things. And I didn't have a lot of clear direction, but I, a long time ago, I read this book by Craig Groeschel called Confessions of a Pastor or something like that. And I found it really encouraging. Like he was this pastor and he just shared these different things that were true of his own faith journey and how God transformed him through that. And so the very first chapter I wrote of this book is it's still titled this is sometimes I want revenge. So it started out as sort of this, like, well, maybe I'll just write these essays kind of that sort of, or these chapters kind of shaped that way of these different confessions I struggle with because sometimes pastors I feel like are looked up to as having arrived or having like some sort of, um, you know, graduated spiritual experience or uh, level. And so I thought, what if I just like share my own, like the human, the human side of, of my own faith. And so the first chapter I wrote was sometimes I want revenge. Like sometimes people hurt me and I want to get even. Uh, or not just even, like sometimes I want retribution, like I want to get even and then some, I want compensation. Uh, but then I was like, well, the Jesus way, so sometimes I want revenge. The counterpart of that is Jesus calls us to forgive and ministry in ministry. That's been a significant theme I've encountered is that forgiveness. It's, I can't really explain it exactly. It's just almost like the spiritual law of the soul that when we harbor unforgiveness, it uh, it's like toxic to our own hearts. So anyways, I had this chapter about revenge, this chapter about forgiveness. And then uh, I also did a sermon once on compassion. And the more I've spent time with Jesus and the gospels, like I started seeing this theme of like grace, compassion, forgiveness. And then, well, what's all of that motivated by? Well, self-giving love. But I saw for each of these things, there's sort of a self-centered counterpart. So like self-giving love, well, selfishness is the counterpart. Uh, compassion, um, judgmentalism is sort of the counterpart. Grace, legalism, forgiveness, revenge. And so I talked about acts of defiance because it's the idea that self-giving love, uh, grace, forgiveness, and compassion defy our natural tendencies of selfishness, legalism, revenge, and uh, uh, judgmentalism, that, that that's the natural bent of the heart. But when we, when we participate in the way of Jesus, we are participating in acts that defy the kingdom of darkness. So that's a long answer for what inspired the book and then where the title came from and sort of how it, I don't know, how it came together. So you essentially just started writing and then you found a direction as you went along. Yeah, I sort of, uh, I, I started out thinking maybe I'd write something about faith and doubt because been part of my story. I grew up going to Christian school and maybe in the future, if I ever want to do this again, maybe I will write something about faith and doubt. So I thought, well, maybe I'll share confessions about sometimes I want revenge. Sometimes I have doubts. Like that's where I thought it was going. But then I sort of like discovered a very clear pattern. So that's how the chapters are structured. So there's 
one chapter on selfishness uh, in in how that shows up in my life and in our lives and how it's normal but destructive. And then the next chapter is on self-giving love. And then, uh, you know, chapter on revenge and forgiveness. And that's, yeah, I sort of discovered this very clear outline. And so I started writing around yeah, I guess I sort of stumbled upon the direction for the book is is the short answer. Yeah, I took a I, different direction. Um, that's that's kind of cool. I uh, I've actually kind of heard authors talk about that process. Sometimes they just like have something they want to get on paper, and they mm -hmm. just uh, they just need to have it on paper, and they they discover where to go with it after that. Yeah. Um, so um, are there any uh, like personal experiences or convictions or relationships that influenced your writing or your, your desire to write? Yeah, it's sort of like- Other than me being an influence. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, Matt inspired me. His yeah. I do life. that. Yeah, Matt inspires people. I mean, you do, you're a teacher. Yeah, teachers inspire people. So the answer, the answer is yes, uh, but it's also complicated because a lot of those things were part of my transformation over years of ministering with people. Um, I think one relationship that influenced it but didn't show up in the book is uh, my relationship with my dad. <clears throat> it doesn't show up... Um, directly because when I started writing it, he was still alive. And I thought, um, well, I, I'd hoped he would read it. And I didn't want to write about him or talk about his story and his struggles in a way that wouldn't be honoring, I guess, to him. Like, I didn't, I, I, it's hard to explain. I just didn't feel free while he was alive uh, to share about uh, parts of his story. But for listeners who may not know, um, my dad was for the last, oh goodness, um, uh, wow, actually almost the last bordering on 20 years, my dad had sort of this ongoing fight with alcohol. And with that, there were hurts and things introduced to my life and our family. Um, and part of that journey of loving him in a Christ-like way involved forgiving him. Like there was a very distinct point in my life where uh, I could not move on. I couldn't, I, I wasn't able um, to follow Jesus and harbor unforgiveness. Uh, and then after forgiving him, having grace because he messed up again and would disappoint again and would, um, hurt me again. And so I had to have grace, but then I also started learning more and more about addiction. Uh, and I started experiencing compassion for him and his story and his own brokenness. Um, now let me back up. I just want to clarify. I didn't always do this perfectly well. There were times where I reacted out of my own hurt in ways that were not Christ-like. There were times that I argued with him or bordered on the line of thought with him that were not honoring to Christ did not reflect self-giving love or grace or compassion or forgiveness. Um, however, it's sort of that relationship 
brought to the surface that these are actually the significant things that the spirit wants to, that Jesus, this is what it means to be holy. So I guess that's the other factor. So my relationship with my dad and then growing up in churches where holiness was sort of defined by like not drinking or smoking or watching these types of movies or having sex with people other than your spouse. But the problem was in my experience in the church, I had encountered people who didn't drink, smoke, cuss, watch rated R movies or whatever, but they weren't kind. Like they didn't reflect compassion or grace. Um, and so I started wrestling with that. And so that sort of experience in the church, coupled with my experience with my dad, I came to this place where I have a core conviction that uh, what Jesus does in our lives through the spirit, the primary work he wants to do is shape us um, by his own self-giving love. And that self-giving love grace, forgiveness, and compassion are marks of what holiness looks like. Uh, so those are some of the experiences and relationships and convictions. And then with that in ministry, like I did some discipleship with a homeless shelter and um, there's a guy that I was partnered with and in his story, like he sort of reminded me of my dad. So essentially the messy people that I started seeing or, or feeling like these that remind me of Zacchaeus, the tax collector or Levi, the tax collector, or um, the Samaritan woman or the woman uh, caught in adultery, like all these people that I was rubbing shoulders with reminded me and their stories reminded me of the people that Jesus interacted with in the gospels. And the way we see Jesus interact with them, um, we see him interact with them with a tremendous amount of grace and forgiveness and compassion. So trying to, I feel like I'm saying a lot. I, I don't, I think I answered your question. Those are some of the experiences and convictions and relationships yeah. that shaped my story or shaped, uh, in a sense, gave birth to parts of the book, but yeah. I don't talk directly about my dad in the book. Um, again, if I ever want to do this again, there might be another place for that. Um, he, again, for listeners who don't know, he died earlier this year, uh, in April. Um, so I feel a little more free, um, to share the story in a way that still honors him, but is honest about the broken parts of it. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, to, to go back to your, the, one of the experiences you shared, just interacting with messy people as you put it and how that moves you to compassion uh and christ-like love for them um i think it's well there's a there's a quote that uh, from the synopsis of your book it says compassion is an afterthought when human beings are reduced to political issues and talking points and it just kind of made me think of that where like if you if you're just talking about someone and not interacting with them, not actually seeing the human side of them. Uh, they're just a political enemy. They're just an ideological enemy. Um, that's not Christ-like love. Like Christ, mm -hmm. he, you know, got his feet dirty, interacted with messy people, saw the humanity in people, and yep. uh, loved them intentionally. And so when you reduce someone with a different agenda than you do, or, you know, 
someone's a Democrat or Republican. So automatically you place them in this box where they, they can't get out of, um, instead of actually interacting with them and, and seeing them as a person, a whole person, um, that's a, uh, that's, that's not how Jesus would have us interact with people. Right. Right. And we see that in the gospels. So like <clears throat> people had, I talk about this in the book, but I watched a Ted talk called, um, Oh, wait, what was the title? Something about a single story. Um, it talks about the problem of having a single story for people. And uh, the, the, the idea is that sometimes we reduce people to a single story. So what that looks like, or one way that looked when I was young. So I was taught that smoking was bad uh, growing up. Um, and Christians don't. So this is a very, I was young. So very simple, linear way of thinking. Smoking is bad. Christians shouldn't do bad things. You can't be a Christian and smoke. Like, so I had the single narrative, the single story of people who smoke are not Christians. The, the problem was my dad smoked. And before the alcohol was an issue, he was involved in church and, and all this stuff. And so there's this cognitive dissonance because, well, it's my dad. That's it's different, you know? Um, but another version of a single story is like all immigrants are here to take our jobs and bringing uh, drugs across the border. Like it's, it's just uh, we, we often can reduce people to a single story, but I've had time and time again, where um, I had a single story of people who, uh, without a home, that uh, they are homeless and poor because they've made bad decisions. This is America. Like, if you work hard, pursue your dreams, this is a land of opportunity. Like, they're just lazy. Then I hear a story of someone who's in a homeless shelter, and they were a successful businessman and had a lot of money. Uh, But I don't remember exactly all the details, I could be mixing up different stories because this was years ago, but I, you hear things like, yeah, they were successful and then their wife like left them and took the children with them and they just sunk into a place of really deep, dark depression and alcoholism and they lost everything. And it's like, are their choices okay? Absolutely not. Um, but do I know that I would do much better if something that drastic happened to my life? I would hope so. I would hope I would deal with it in healthy ways. But the thing is, is you begin to see when you enter into people's stories and they're not just talking points, you begin to see like it humanizes what they're going through. I remember having opinions about immigrants, but a lady, when I used to have hair who cut my hair was Hispanic um, and her husband was undocumented and they were trying to go through the process. And I remember her telling me about, first of all, how, how complicated it was, how expensive it was, how they were trying to do the, the right thing, um, but how there's a very real danger of him uh, being deported back to Mexico. She was, I think, uh, born a citizen. I think she was born here. Um, but, and I, then I began to think like, oh my goodness, how terrible would that be if like my spouse were deported? And like, as a Christian, can I advocate for that? Like, can I say that I want for that to happen because it needs to meet the letter of the law? Like, um, I remember I was sitting in a seminary class and I had, um, some fellow students were black. And I remember when some, 
I think it was the stuff in Ferguson, Missouri, and some things went down. I remember them expressing frustration and hurt and grief. And I remember thinking like, well, dude ran from cops or like he did something illegal or like, you know, I just had a very single story of what happened. And it occurred to me, um, I can either dismiss the pain and grief and um, experience of my black classmates who also love God and Jesus and arrogantly assume that my single story is right, or I can try to listen with humility. Um, and so all of this stuff, I realize like we have all these opinions about stuff, but a lot of times this is the frustrating thing. I'm getting preachy. I'll, I'll wrap it up here in a second. The frustrating thing is a lot of us have sometimes have opinions about stuff, um, but we've never talked to someone for who, who is walking through the experience. We have lots of opinions about their story and what they should do and, and how to fix their, their situation, except we've never sat face to face with them and listened to them and tried to understand them and entered into, uh, and that's, but that's what Jesus does. He enters into, uh, the theological term is incarnation. Like he takes on flesh. He enters into the human story. So Yeah. You didn't ask a question. I was more commentating, I guess. Like when we reduce people to talking points and political issues and their entire story can be reduced to a meme, compassion's an afterthought. Like we are not thinking about having compassion for people and their situation when we uh, just reduce their entire story to sort of a smug meme. Um, and to be clear, I am sure at different points, I've been guilty, not sure. I have been guilty. Probably not. A po I don't know that I've posted a meme because I don't do that very much, but I know I have been guilty of reducing people and their stories and sort of cutting off my heart from having compassion. Yeah. I mean, I, I me too. Uh, I live, we live, I mean, my wife and I live in, in, a, in a town that um, there's a lot of drugs. You know, there's a lot of uh, especially meth and, and heroin. There's a lot of like trailer parks and poverty around us. And when I got here, I, I was, I'm from a, a pretty wealthy Chicago suburb. So it, I'd never really experienced that before. And when I got here, <clears throat> I was just, it was kind of a culture shock when I moved to Indiana and seeing that and, and automatically just judging people based on, um, the choices I thought they were intentionally making to live that way. Um, I, I recently volunteered uh, at a, a recovery home here in town with recovering addicts and you hear their stories. And, and like you said, like, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't do much better if I was in your, in your shoes. Um, you know, there's one individual who, who lost custody of his daughter and slipped into drugs. He um, just stories like that were, they're they're coping with brokenness and in a way that's destructive sure but it's still uh when when you hear their story you hear the the reason behind their actions instead of just like looking down upon them um you understand you you start to see their humanity and you start to actually you know have compassion on them so yeah i want to just commentate on that too the I, I'm an assistant chaplain with a jail ministry in the area I'm at now. And um, a lot of the guys in there are in there for substance related, addiction related 
crimes. And it's, dude, it's heartbreaking, the number of them that, and I, I've, I'm still kind of new to it, and I'm not even getting to know all of them, but the ones I have interacted with, the number of them that have had really messed up, traumatic abuse, physical, sexual, verbal, compounded trauma in their childhood. And then, um, yeah, they coped with drugs. Yes, that's wrong. It's unhealthy. It's destructive. It's a very negative pattern. But in their years of innocence, when they should have had people who love them and help guide them and direct them, uh, many of them were just completely let down by the people who should have loved them the most and not just let down, but, but severely wounded. And the way I think Jesus addresses woundedness and brokenness is he brings healing. He, he's, there's this, um, almost this healing balm of grace is, is how Jesus, I think, calls us. And so when we begin with condemnation, I think we miss the opportunity to be, to participate in the healing process. And, uh, and then the other thing, this is the other thing, this is uncomfortable for people, but we all cope with things in various ways. It's just some of us, maybe we don't cope with a substance, an addictive substance that's detrimental, um, but we cope with food. The, the levels of heart disease in America indicate that like, and so it's destructive too. Like it's unhealthy. Uh, some of the, and me too. Some of the foods and the amount of sugar I eat, um, we cope with working too much or trying to make too you know more money so we can buy more things. Uh, go go you know go into credit card debt. Uh, we're not much different than some of the other people that we're very quick to judge. Sometimes is is kind of the point I'm making. I guess uh, it's just sometimes the thing it's more acceptable for me to cope with uh things in my life by eating a cookie at night than uh you know downing a half bottle of wine or something um so uh yeah i'm not sure where i was going with that other yeah. than the compassion piece <laughs> yeah we're quite, I mean, just seeing that we're not all different from yeah the, the actually like line of demarcation from between people is is not not very far like i think jesus pointed that out too like with the pharisees mm -hmm. and sadducees mm -hmm. like well, the story of the prodigal son um where he's just calling out the pharisees for being the the whiny older brother mm -hmm. jesus is saying you, you you no longer should be worried about what they did in the past the important thing is these are people who found grace mm -hmm. uh, rejoice yeah. with you yeah and, um, I think we need, we need a lot more of that. So, yep. Um, left turn here. What was the hardest part of writing the book and what was the most fulfilling? Um, well, okay. There's uh, two, uh, two things that were challenging. I think there were times that it was just hard to sit down and make myself do it. Um, but I think maybe a little bit of seminary prepared me to do that. I would go sometimes and go to Grace Library, Grace College where Matt, Matt teaches. Hey uh, Grace Library or a coffee shop. And I'd force myself to do homework. You know, I'd sit down and that was my purpose. So that 
sort of pattern is kind of what I, I did. I would talk to Emily um, about, you know, make, make sure, hey, can I have a couple hours on this day to go to a coffee shop and devote it to writing? And so um, just having that discipline was probably a challenge. Um, one of the helpful things, this is different, but one of the helpful things was when I started manuscripting my sermons, there were pieces of sermons that I was able to go back to and, and draw a lot of content from and passages of scripture that I maybe talk about in the book that I've studied and I had a sermon, you know, so there was, that was really helpful. But so one of the hard things was just the discipline of, of just making myself do it. And then the other hard thing was actually the publishing process. Um, I submitted it to a couple, well, I don't know how, I don't know how technical you want, but some publishing companies don't accept unsolicited manuscripts, meaning you need to have an agent representing you uh, and, and the agent can talk to the publisher or the publisher needs to come to you, which if I were a pastor of like a 5,000 person church uh, or had a, a blog with several thousand people to it, a publisher might come and say, hey, you should write a book. We want to publish it and stuff like that. That wasn't the case. So I had to find publishers that were taking unsolicited manuscripts. Well, I submitted several proposals and had two really hopeful opportunities, two or three, I think. Uh, but it kind of fell down to um, the risk of the publisher and my span of influence. Uh, it was just hard for them to, to take the risk. Um, and so I ended up going a self-publishing route through Zulon Press. And there's a bit of like, essentially I am carrying the financial risk. Like I put the financial investment into publishing. Um, so that was hard. And then you asked what was most fulfilling. I think in a sense, this is so simple, but sort of accomplishing a goal. So I'm in a place where like, I want people to read it. I want people to buy it. I would love to make back what I invested in it. I'm not looking to make a ton more. Um, but even if, like, even if like only my family and closest friends and our faithful podcast listeners buy the book and read it, there's still a pretty fulfilling sense of like, I completed a goal I set out to do. Like I just, I, I wanted to write a manuscript and publish it. And at the end of the day, even if no one buys it, I did it. And that's kind of fulfilling. Yeah. Um, Separately yeah. point of pride. It's a, it's a accomplishment that not a lot of people can say they've done. So, yeah. So that was fulfilling. Yeah. Um, yeah. The whole technical side of publishers is, um, tricky because essentially they're just looking to make their money and mm -hmm. if yeah so they they need someone with a global influence basically they can be assured they'll sell copies um, yeah but there's always a the self-publishing route as well and hopefully we'll help you uh get the word out so people can yeah people can check it out um yep speaking of that where can we purchase the book or where can we learn more about it if we're curious? Yeah. Uh, so a couple, there's actually a couple of places. 
Um, the simplest would be to go to, uh, I have a website. Uh, it's kind of new. I had a, I used to have a WordPress blog. It's still active, uh, but I, I have a, a new website. It's anthonymcottrell.com. So uh, C-O-T-T-R-E-L-L. Anthony M as in Matt Cottrell, except Matt is not my middle name. It's Miles. <laughs> Miles is his name. It is anthonymcottrell.com. And on the very the homepage there, if you scroll down, there's a section about the book. You can click more info. I'll take you to a page. And on that page, you can select buy the book. <laughs> and that will take you to the Zulon uh, store, basically. And so you can buy it from there. The Zulon link is just not simple. It's one with a bunch of letters and numbers and all this stuff after. So I think the simplest would be go to my website, click on the link that way, and it'll take you to the, to the Zulon store. And it's available in uh, paperback and um, digital e-reader version. And if you go there, uh, I will receive the most royalty. But you can also search for Acts of Defiance or Anthony M. Cottrell at Barnes & Noble and Amazon. It's there. You can purchase it there. You can actually pre-order from Barnes & Noble and Amazon today if you want. But they take a, quite a bit more of a chunk, Barnes & Noble and Amazon, uh, uh, of what of, of the they take a bigger slice of the pie. So I am encouraging family and friends to, to directly get it from Zulon. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we'll make sure to check that out and, and support you. Oh, the, the, the actual date it comes out is December 11th, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. so That's this Sunday. Come out on the 7th. So you'll have mm -hmm. four days um, yep. before you can enjoy. Um, yep. But yep. So, side note, as you were spelling your last name for your website, you spelled it uh, with, you know, two T's and two L's and you know, I met you, what, five, five years ago, something like mm -hmm. that. And I spelled your name wrong in my phone. It only has one T and one L and it's nice. still spelled that way. Uh, That's today. funny. <laughs> um, uh, so I just thought we were that. good friends, Matt. <laughs> it's still, still spelled wrong in my phone. So That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks for, thanks for giving us a glimpse of the book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I'm sure many other people are as well, and I'll post the um, the link to your website and the, the book link as well in the show notes. So sounds good. I will very much appreciate it. What I would encourage, uh, I'll just encourage people to do this will help. Um, and I, I do want to be clear. Uh, do it if you genuinely think it's helpful. If you read this book and it encouraged you or challenged you or you you felt even spiritually that like uh it it encouraged you to maybe release and forgive someone or uh it helped you start seeing people through a lens of grace and compassion or or just some paradigms were challenged and it was helpful uh recommend it to a friend or friends or family um a cool thing too if you want i you know i don't ever like to coerce or and I don't like to ask people to do things, but one thing you could do if you were willing is if you order it and you get a uh, 
you know, a copy, or I guess even if you have an e-reader, like take a selfie or something with it and maybe post um, on, on your social medias and uh, platforms. The more people besides me that are sharing about it, the more traffic and all that stuff uh, it will get. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Don't worry, we'll sell you some copies. All right. No, it's not all about selling copies. I know this it's not something that you've been passionate about and you did it and we're all, we're all happy for you. So, so the reason I took the self-publishing risk is, is one, there is a goal, but the other part is I've just sort of in a place of like, all right, you know what, God, if you want to use this, I'm not trying to sound super humble. I, like I've tried to reduce the ego thing, but I'm still human. So there's part of me, but I'm trying to like, I'm trying to, um, deny myself, I guess, or whatever, like suffocate the ego part and just say, God, if you want to use this and it's something that will uh, encourage, bless, challenge, help people, like you can use it. And I'm going to do my part and I've, uh, of writing it, but then I also took the step of like, I'll do my part even in, in the publishing process. And at this point, it's like, on one hand, I care. You know, on one hand, I'm still human and I care if people buy it and read it. On the other hand, um, I've done my part. And if it helps people, encourages people, inspires people, great. If not, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you sold at least one copy. All right. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast help, I'm trying to verbatim quote what you normally say. If you found this podcast helpful or even if you didn't <laughs> like share subscribe yeah yeah did i do it i think i did it right but yeah no <laughs> yeah it's it's a not half bad podcast not half bad podcast yeah so yeah like share subscribe um again apologize for the the gap in episodes last month but life happened so hopefully you understand thanks for understanding um until next time Thanks for listening to Theologizing Life.